You are listening live to the latest edition of the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad to have you along. We flipped the calendar to August today. Hard to believe, but we got a lot of guests to get to over the course of the next hour. Former Northern Michigan wide receiver Marcus Tucker will join me in just a second. Plus, a Marquette native is representing the red, white, and blue down south. A little more south than you might think. And we have got something special coming to the UP for the first time ever this year. We've got all that coming up over the course of the next hour. I'm Tanner Hoops. Glad to have you along. I tell you what, Marcus Tucker has been lighting up sidelines at any level for the past how many years now? He was at Northern Michigan, a standout wideout for the Wildcats. Ended up getting a tryout with the Pittsburgh Steelers. Things didn't work out there. And he has since made his way north to Hamilton, playing for the division-leading Hamilton Tiger Cats of the Canadian Football League. He joins us on the ESPN-UP phone line now. Marcus, appreciate you taking the time. How's everything going? It's amazing right now. We're just having a good time playing ball. Yeah, a five and one start to the year for your guys. You ended up losing Jeremiah Masoli last week. A tough injury to come back from. Tell me about how the team's rallied since then. Um, it's uh, definitely uh, tough to to lose a guy like Jeremiah, uh, who's so versatile and and is really a, a leader out there on our team. Um, but guys are just rallied, and uh, we're focused on Saskatchewan this Thursday. We got a quick turnaround, so uh, we just got to get ready and get prepared. Well, you got Dane Evans who's ready to step up and take on the role. How's he feeling about the situation, and what do you expect from him as a leader? Um, well, uh, we just have a next guy up mentality here in Hamilton. And um, to be honest with you, I think Dan is uh, prepared, and he's a guy who has been here before and has been in this uh, program now for a while. So uh, he's familiar with the with the teams. He's familiar with the substance in which he's um able to digest out there so um i'm just excited to see him uh go grow and and have an opportunity to be a starting quarterback well, you mentioned you've got saskatchewan coming up next tell me about the rough riders what do you expect from them um well they're they're a hard-nosed football team i mean those guys played us uh extremely well in the first game of the season um it was a physical game uh those guys are physical they're competitive and um they're not backing down for anybody, from anybody. Um, so uh, I just think it's going to be a tough game, especially going into their stadium and, and trying to squeeze out a victory. Tell me about the rest of the conference, the division, what have you. How confident do you feel that you're still able to make a run? I really don't know um, much about what anybody else is doing. Well, I'm kind of focused on being a Hamilton Tiger Cat. So, uh I know what we're doing here in this locker room, and I know what guys are committed to doing here. And um, We're excited, and we feel like uh, we have a chance to go out there each week and just get better. Um, and hopefully the film shows it, and hopefully the uh, scoreboard shows it at the end of the game. Well, a couple of weeks ago, you got your first CFL touchdown. You followed that up by scoring the two-point conversion. Tell me about that moment, how you felt afterwards. Uh, well, really, we were in a... a uh, we were in a dogfight at that point, uh, really just trying to fight for to stay in the game, really. So I didn't have time to kind of digest the moment of scoring my first touchdown. I really just had to um, keep us in the game. That was my mentality. I was like, you know, we got to come on. We got to make plays. Uh, so uh, that that's where I was with, the, with that. So, I mean, that's all I can say about that. But. Um, afterwards, after the game, um, after the 
fog of war had settled, uh, it kind of dawned on me that, wow, like that was my first CFL touchdown. And uh, it, was a, it was a special moment for me at that moment, but uh, not during the game at all. How about your coaching staff? Tell me about your coaches and how they've been preparing you for this season. What's something they've been really addressing to your team? They really just uh, keep us focused. Um, they are not too much worried about what anybody else is doing. They always tell us to focus on uh, things we need and how how much better we can get individually uh, and collectively as a unit. So um, they're singularly focused on this team. They're well prepared and I feel like um, we got some of the best coaches in the league. We're always ready every week. Talk with Marcus Tucker, former Northern Michigan wideout, currently with the Hamilton Tiger Cats of the CFL. Can you reflect on your time at Northern for me? Tell me about what that taught you and how it helped mold you as a football player. Um, Northern Michigan, I felt like, was uh, my foundational learning to becoming a professional. Um, at Northern Michigan, I had to endure balancing school, balancing football. I had to endure um, learning more than I had ever learned uh, from an academic standpoint and as well as from an athletic standpoint. So uh, my coaches, uh, head coach Chris Kostrowski at the time and also Marcus Knight, uh, those are two of the most knowledgeable coaches that I've ever been around. Um, and In fact, even when I got to the National Football League, literally the same language uh, that Marcus Knight was using with his wide receiver group um, we were using in the National Football League. So uh, you were literally getting verbatim words to verbatim coaching uh, that was getting you prepared to be on the next level. So um, it was just an amazing experience. Tell me about making the jump, the transition to Canadian football. There's a little bit different set of rules. The field conditions are a little different. Was there an adjustment period for you? Um, I feel like the rule, the, the, the biggest thing was the rules, the waggle, as they call it, with the forward motion and starts. Uh, trying to get those things uh, compact after, you know, having still movement for, you know, 20 plus years of playing the game of football, and now you have to figure all this out within a couple of months or, or else you'll be sent home, so. It, it, it was challenging, um, and I was ready for it, and I was excited for it, and I was up to getting better and just up to um, broadening my, you know, uh, portfolio as an athlete, as a football player. Is there a kind of a support system among maybe some of the other American-born players that you help each other through the learning curve? Um, yeah, I mean, we were all the guys who didn't know what we were doing, so... <laughs> You kind of naturally build a bond with those guys uh, when you're all struggling with uh, some of the same sort of thing. Well, Marcus, tell me about some goals for yourself and then for your team. First place lead to defend. Um, really, I'm, singularly, I'm just uh, focused on becoming a better teammate and a better player each day. Um, I'm, I'm just thankful for the opportunity to be here in Hamilton and to be a part of this. Um, and as a team, we just got to win week to week. Um, we got to show up. We got to commit to the process. We have to be better prepared. We have to be more physical. Uh, and we just got to go out there and get come back with a victory no matter what happens. Uh, we need it in all three phases. So uh, we just got to get it done. Outside of football, what do you like about Hamilton? 
Um, outside of football, I like the diversity here. Uh, I feel like uh, it's so peaceful and friendly, which is uh, a lot like Marquette in a way. Um, but it's just so much more diversity. So um, I think that aspect of it is cool, and I'm able to kind of relate with people and see people and meet people that I would have never come across. Do you see a lot of similarities to Marquette and Hamilton and maybe some other cities in the CFL? Um, Marquette, I feel like Marquette and Hamilton is similar in which the kindness of the people. Um, again, this is a kind-hearted, friendly, you know, just cool vibe that you get when you're here. And it's the same way in Marquette when you uh, step foot on campus at Northern. Talking once again with Marcus Tucker, former Northern Michigan standout, currently a wide receiver with the Hamilton Tiger Cats of the CFL. Marcus, wishing you and the team all the best the rest of the way. A quick recovery for Jeremiah. Thanks again for your time. Thank you. Let's take a time out. When we come back, Mike Lozier, head volleyball coach at Northern Michigan, will join me. We'll preview his upcoming season next on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to The Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Time now to preview the upcoming Northern Michigan volleyball season. We're joined by head coach Mike Lozier. Coach, appreciate you taking the time and you get set to start. Start your third year with the green and gold. Tell me about your expectations for this team and where you're looking to take the program. Well, um, we have pretty high expectations for this team. Um, we're going to be young. We've graduated seven seniors, uh, so the turnover on that is, um, you know, it's tough sometimes. But at the same time, that was the last class that was uh, a group that I had recruited. So there's always some excitement when it comes to you know, these are all now pretty much the recruits that, you know, Kristen and I brought in, and that there's a lot of excitement around that. And we had them up for camp this week, um, or I'm sorry, a week before, and they're awesome. They're super energetic and, and excited. And so our expectations are that we're going to be young, we're going to make some young mistakes, but we're also going to do some really good things um, just with our athleticism and our energy and all those things. Well, Coach, tell me about the roster, who you've got coming in to replace some of the spots or seniors left. Yeah, so we're bringing in four new players next year. Uh, we're bringing in a middle from South Lyon, Michigan. Uh, her name's Abby Durecki. She is super fast, uh, great kid, great player, and played at a high level in uh, club volleyball. And then we have uh, Madeline Crowley, who is a DS slash outside from Wisconsin, who, again, same thing, has always played at a high level. She brings in a lot of great skill for the positions we need. So we needed an outside that could be crafty, and we needed a DS that could also take some swings. She fills that role. We have Lauren Vanermortal from Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, she is a fantastic setter. Uh, she's filling a role we need to graduate a setter. Uh, really, really high volleyball IQ. She knows the game well, which as a setter is super important. Uh, and, and then finally, we have a transfer DS coming in from Loyola, Chicago. Uh, she is a great player, great fit. We had her on campus. She fit in with the girls right away. Um, and she's going to be competing for playing time right away, maybe even the libero spot. So we're really excited about having her as well. Well, Coach, tell me about some of your returners, your senior class. What have you looking to take on some new roles this year? Yeah, so we have a couple players that are going to have to step into some big spots. Uh, Ellie Yako is uh, DS. She 
played three rotations last season, but uh, we kind of project her in that libero spot right now. Um, she did some really great things in the spring during her off season. She made some huge strides that's real that are really exciting to see. Um, and then you have uh, Lizzie Stark, who is an outside who didn't see the court a ton last year, um, and we expect her to come in and be ready to go and be a huge impact for us on the outside. Um, another one, a UP kid from Calumet, Haley Wickstrom, hasn't really seen a ton of opportunities, and now she's going to be stepping in on the right side. And we expect her to also perform really well. She's 6'3", she's really, she's, she's athletic, and she can do some really exciting things. She's still learning, um, but we feel like her growth has been tremendous, and she's going to step in and, and play well. Coach, tell me about the rest of your coaching staff. Who will be joining you and assisting you this year? Yep, so Kristen Pickett, who is my assistant coach, she's going, we both kind of came in at the same time, uh, third year. Um, she's done, you know, fabulous with the, with the recruiting. Um, she's from Tennessee, so the hub, southern hospitality really helps when you're recruiting kids. Um, and then we actually have uh, Mandy Meyer joining us, who uh, she was the assistant of the former coach here at Northern. Um, she's really into volleyball after um, that they decided to step step aside. She decided to stay in Marquette and just work. So I reached out to her and just told her, like, hey, we want you to be a part of this. She was really excited at that opportunity, so she's going to be in the gym with us as well. Well, Coach, let's talk about your schedule and what you've got on the docket this year. You'll get it going with four games up at Michigan Tech, then headed down to Indianapolis. Before you open conference play, we'll start out with your non-conference schedule. Tell me about those weekends in Indianapolis and Houghton. Yeah, so we open up in Houghton. Our first match is actually the first match of the tournament on a Thursday against Mary, and it's always nice to play in the UP. I mean, we, we would obviously love to host, but if we can't, then, then Michigan Tech is the next best thing because fans can take an easy drive over to watch us play. Uh, and it's going to be a good mix of competition between Mary, Crookston, uh, Southwest Minnesota, and Upper Iowa. Um, Southwest Minnesota is historically one of the better teams in the country. Upper Iowa, we played on a pretty, pretty regular basis here at Northern, and they're a very, very solid team. Crookston we beat up on a little bit last year, and Mary as well. Um, but you just never know in college with the rate of turnover, you know, you get a couple of good players into your program, anything can happen. Uh, and then going down to Indianapolis, um, playing some playing some really good teams. I'm excited about that. Davenport, who obviously is in our conference, they just got a new coach, so I'm interested to see what they do. Um, and then a, a variety of other teams that, you know, you just don't really know because they're, they're out-of-region out of teams. And, um, we don't we don't follow them a ton. Um, our goal really is to come out of that that weekend, hopefully with a winning record, and uh, have learned some things. Again, I can't stress enough that with youth early in the season, it's about you know trying to steal some wins, but continuing to get better so that come November we're playing our best volleyball and competing for not only a conference championship, but making that national tournament. Well, Coach, you talked about the youth and your team. When you've got a team that's got to go through growing pains and what have you, have you had experience with that where they start maybe to panic a little bit, worrying about the record, and you got to tell them, just hit the reset button, you're growing along the way? Yeah, I mean, it's actually a lot easier to do that when you are young. Um, it's a little bit more difficult when you have older players that are wondering, what are we doing wrong, what happened, uh, and you don't have that kind of, well, we're learning because we're young. That's no longer an excuse. So um, when you're young, it's the, it's the God-honest truth that, hey, you know, we're going to, you know, I always tell people we're probably going to lose to teams that we shouldn't lose to, and we're going to beat teams that are probably better than us because we're going to do some really good things just with our 
our youth and our energy. So you just gotta you gotta kind of feel every team's different. We'll feel out what's going on. Hopefully, we're not experiencing those young moments often, and we're able to continue to play well. But you know, it's something you face, and we understand that. I think the girls understand that. They've done a lot in the off season with their training, working with the strength coach, um, finding opportunities to play in open gym when they can, and I, I think that's gonna pay dividends when we get to season. Talk with Mike Lozier, head volleyball coach at Northern Michigan, just getting set to start the season. Well, Coach, between now and your first match, what's going to be the plan as far as practice goes? So uh, the NCAA sets the date that we're first allowed to start our practices. Uh, so that is August 19th. So up until between now and August 19th, uh, the girls are still going to lift. They're still going to do some things. Um, but for the most part, they're just kind of getting ready to, to get into the gym. Um, and then once the 19th hits, uh, we get one week of preseason. Traditionally, we get two weeks, but because of the way Northern's academic schedule fell, we only get one week without classes. So we'll be doing a lot of practice. We have two practices a day. They'll be lifting every day, conditioning every day, just really trying to get as much of that rust knocked off and get those young players into our system as quickly as we can so when that first match comes, we're ready to go. Um, and the other thing we did, we actually just uh, – just decided to have a scrimmage against uh, Community College Downstate on August 21st uh, at 7 o'clock in this gym. Uh, not only to show, showcase the new team, but we actually just finished our, redid our entire gym. So brand new floor, um, some new banners, a lot of exciting things. And we wanted to make sure that the people in the community got a chance to see it before our first conference home match, which isn't until the end of September. Oh, Coach, taking a look at the GLIAC now, who are you looking for to be a force in that conference, and where does your squad fit in? So uh, in the last five or six years, it's been kind of Ferris State and everybody else, um, and I kind of expect that might be the case. Um, there's, I really think there are three teams that have, have done a lot of positive things and have returned a majority of their roster. That would be Ferris State, Michigan Tech, and Ashland. Um, and then after that, I think it's, it's a dogfight between you know, I think we're in that mix. I think Grand Valley, um, Saginaw Valley, uh, Wayne State, all those schools are kind of vying for the, you know, that four through eight spot. Um, not to say that we aren't capable of, you know, jumping into that top three. I just think it's it would be silly right now to make that prediction without, with again, talking about we're bringing in a lot of new players in the new system. I, I think we have that potential to compete at that two, three level. Um, but right now I would put us, you know, maybe in the four or five spot in our conference. Coach, any special home games this year? Any kind of promotional events, what have you? Anything coming up prior to senior night? Um, I think the big one is uh, our first, come to our first home conference match um, just to see our new facility. Because if you've ever been in our facility, it is basically completely redone and completely new. And, and they've done a great job, our department. Our administration's been super supportive of the things that Chris and I have been asking them to do. Um, and then, obviously, the Michigan Tech match at home is always always a big one that um, we want people to come out for. Well, Coach, tell me about some of your supporting staff, your relationships with the athletic department, Forrest Carr, and then the weight staff as well. Yeah, uh, Forrest has been nothing but amazing for me. I've, I've, um, I've really enjoyed working with him. Um, and really everybody in that department is the thing I love about it is it's more about how can we make things work like when I come to them with an idea like getting the floor done we're working on a project right now a fundraising project to get our locker redone because 
the biggest thing that we talk about all the time is facilities are one of our biggest selling points uh, as a volleyball program. Not many programs have their own volleyball-specific facility. Um, and so in that way, they've been super helpful. Even President Erickson has been just amazing with helping, uh, you know, athletics as a whole, but volleyball in particular, and I really appreciated that. Um, and then um, our strength and conditioning staff has, has been great. Jenna, who's new, started about a month ago. Um, the girls absolutely love working with her. She's made a bigger, faster, stronger, which is what we want in, in, you know, in our strength and conditioning program. And so, um, honestly, coming in, I've been here a little over two and a half years. I came in completely blind, not really knowing much. Um, and it has far exceeded my expectations in terms of the community of Marquette and the university and our athletic department. Well, Coach, lastly, the program has grown consistently underneath you under the last couple of years. What is the benchmark this year? I know you've got some spots to replace. What is the benchmark this year? What are you looking for out of your team? Uh, I think I think if we're setting a goal right now, our goal should be to host the first round of the GLIAC tournament. So that would be finishing at least fourth or better in the conference. Um, outside of that, though, I think just growth as a program as a whole, because having having it be the first true class uh, that Chris and I recruited, um, we want to set a culture and something that is far goes far beyond us. So if I were something were to happen where I wasn't here next year, that we've set the ground, we've you know established roots in a program that are great ambassadors of the university, the community, the state of Michigan. So when people hear about Northern Michigan volleyball, they they know that we're people that are going to show up, we're going to work hard, we're going to do great things um, both on and off the court. And that's, that's really what we're trying to do. That's one of the things I knew I wanted to establish as a head coach in volleyball, and I think we're kind of laying the groundwork for that. And that's really what's most exciting. Mike Lozier is the head volleyball coach at Northern Michigan, getting set to open up the 2019-2020 campaign. Coach, really appreciate you taking the time. All the best this year. I'm sure we'll be talking again soon. Awesome. Thank you so much. Let's take a time out when we come back. Our trade deadline grades next on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to The Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you Thursday afternoon. Glad to have you along as always. Here's your Sports Center update. FIFA has approved the expansion of the Women's World Cup tournament field from 24 teams to 32. Atlanta Falcons first-round draft pick Caleb McGarry underwent a cardiac ablation procedure yesterday afternoon. And finally, a 10-year-old in Canton, Michigan, has been charged with aggravated assault after hitting a classmate with a dodgeball while they were playing at recess. Seriously, that's a world we live in now. That is your Sports Center update. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad to have you along as always. Well, it is August, which means yesterday was the trade deadline in Major League Baseball. We had some winners, we had some losers, we had some movers, and we had some teams that sat on their hands. I'm here to give you my report card. I'm going to give grades to the teams that were involved in the trades and those who probably should have been. Let me give you my list and my reasons why, and I want to go alphabetically because I love to. We start with the Atlanta Braves, a team that I'm given an A- minus for their job yesterday. They picked up Shane Green, Chris Martin, and Mark Melanson. Now, I know Melanson has struggled this year, but he was a one-time All-Star back in 2015. They did exactly what they needed to do. They went out and they got bullpen help, especially Shane Green. That guy was an All-Star in 2019. 
who was an all-star a month ago. That's exactly what they needed. You know, Sure, they could have used some starting pitching. I still think they're a starting pitcher or two away, but this is what's going to put them over the top to being the serious number two team in the National League. And if you do end up matching up with L.A., anything can happen. That's why we play it. So Atlanta did themselves a favor. Again, A- minus because they could have used a couple of starters, but they're in good shape with where they are right now. I'm giving the Braves an A- minus based on their trade deadline performance. The Boston Red Sox. They get a D from me. Dave Dombrowski was promising rumors about going after top-tier starters, some major relievers, maybe a few guys to bolster the offense. That way they can repeat as World Series champions. He does none of that. Tiger fans know that all too well. Dombrowski does none of that. And Boston is sitting like a lame duck. They're not going to make the playoffs going this rate. They have all the talent there. They have all the talent that won them a World Series last year. But for whatever reason, that World Series hangover has carried over to this season to the point where the talent just can't get it going. Boston needed to make a move at the deadline. They didn't. In my mind, that's a D. Should be a D minus, maybe even an F. Because unlike the Yankees, who weren't movers yesterday or at any time during the trade deadline period, Boston is not going to make the playoffs. That alone could give them an F in my book. But I'm going to be generous and give them a D. The Chicago Cubs, they get a B-minus in my book. They picked up Nick Castellanos, a depth guy who can provide a right-handed bat with limited defensive skills, and then David Phelps, a relief pitcher. They did move out Carl Edwards Jr., a guy who'd struggled mightily for them this year. He got sent down to AAA Iowa. Now they deal him off to the San Diego Padres. So the Cubs did the right thing as far as getting in fresh relief arms. They got Castellanos. Again, he's not going to play a major role for them. He'll come in as a pinch hitter every once in a while. But as a second-place team, as we stand right now on August 1st, 2019, that's not enough. They didn't do enough for me to give them a higher grade than a B minus. Still not a bad day, but I'm going to give Chicago a B minus on the trade deadline. The Cleveland Indians, another team that I'm going to give a B minus to, and I feel like I'm being generous. But then again, I do have an emotional investment in this postseason run. Cleveland, I'm giving a B- minus because while they picked up Franmil Reyes and Yasiel Puig, they did have to say goodbye to Trevor Bauer. That's going to hurt them a little bit. Bauer, as much of a hothead as he was, he is a talented pitcher. Yasiel Puig is coming to Cleveland. Franmil Reyes is going to be there as well. I'll just say this first and foremost. The best player that Cleveland got back is Franmil Reyes. If Yasiel Puig can hit for average, hit about 250 with power like he's been doing, Fine. Cleveland's going to be okay. He is the best outfielder they have on their roster right now, but that's because the bar is so incredibly low. Jordan Luplo is probably the best outfielder before Yasiel got there. Elsewhere, you've got Greg Allen, Bradley Zimmer, Oscar Mercado. Just not a lot of talent in that outfield. Puig does satisfy the need for a right-handed power stick. So it's not a bad trade, don't get me wrong. But Puig is not who he was back in 2013. He's been steadily declining ever since. Now, the pitching aspect of things, yes, they lose Bauer, but they are going to get Carlos Carrasco and Corey Kluber back here later this month. Those two, providing they can pitch as expected, should be able to make up for the loss of Bauer. Plus, Danny Salazar is activated. He will pitch tonight. It's going to be his debut against the Houston Astros. It'll be one heck of a measuring stick in your first start back off the injured list. So I give Cleveland a B plus, but again, maybe that's generous because I don't think that they're going to win that division. I don't think they made enough good moves to win that division. Cleveland last year got swept out of the playoffs in the first round by Houston when they had a much better outfield than they have right now, an outfield that included Lonnie Chisenhall and Michael Brantley. You think that they're going to be any better with Yasiel Puig, Oscar Mercado, Bradley Zimmer, 
That's not a huge upgrade. And by the way, last year that came with Trevor Bauer as well. They're subtracting from a good pitching staff. That's always been their strength. And they're trying to put it all on the shoulders of Yasiel Puig, who's going to start his Cleveland career on suspension. The Detroit Tigers. I'll be honest, I don't have a grade for them right now. And I don't think any of us are going to until about two or three years from now. Detroit got quite a few prospects back. Some players that are still waiting to be named. We don't even know who Detroit got back fully in return. We know they did the right thing and they got what they could for guys like Castellanos and Green. They did what they could. They got some prospects back. Now you got to give them a few years to develop, see what they can do once they get to the major league level. I don't have a grade for Detroit. I don't think any of us will have an accurate grade until about a couple of years from now. Houston. They were the big winners yesterday. A-plus in my book. Houston, let me say this is the new favorite to be the 2019 World Series champion. I said it was going to be a Yankee-Dodger World Series. It will now be a Houston victory over the Dodgers later this October. That's my pick. It's going to be a repeat of 2017, Houston beating the Dodgers. And it goes a lot farther than acquiring Zach Grinke. Grinke was just one part of it. You add Grinke to a pitching rotation that includes Justin Verlander and Garrett Cole, and suddenly the Astros have the top three pitchers in terms of whip in 2019. Guess what? That's exactly who you're going to see in the World Series. You have to win a series against that trio of starting pitchers. Even in the bottom half, they're loaded. See, they're not just going for a World Series win. They're going for the top spot in the American League. Because look at their four and five starters. Wade Miley has exceeded expectations this year as the four starter. Plus, they bring in Aaron Sanchez along with Joe Biagini yesterday from Toronto. Aaron Sanchez won an ERA title back in 2016. He hasn't brought that same consistency since. But can he? Absolutely. I don't think that he peaked in 2016. The Astros don't think he peaked in 2016. And the Astros are one of the most technologically savvy teams in Major League Baseball. They love analytics. They can't get enough of it. If there's any team that is a perfect match for Aaron Sanchez and vice versa, it is Houston because they know how to use the analytics to get the most out of their players and their prospects. Sanchez has shown that he's already got it. Now the Astros are just going to bring it out of him again. And he's going to be their five-starter. Think how scary that is. A-plus in my book for Houston. They acquired those two from Toronto earlier in the day. Then they beat the buzzer with the Grinky trade. Here may be the biggest thing of all. While I take that A and I give it an A-plus, they held on to their top prospect. They dealt three prospects in exchange for Grinky, but they held on to their top prospect, Kyle Tucker, an outfielder who's ranked 13th in all of baseball, number one in the Astros organization. Somehow no one worked out a deal where they got Kyle Tucker back. And the Astros still pulled it off that they were able to get Sanchez, a former ERA title winner, and Zach Grinke, one of the best pitchers in the game today. A-plus Houston Astros. The LA Dodgers. I give them a C. The only notable get they got was Jed Jerko. Fine. But he's only going to be a fill-in guy. He's only there to provide depth for the guys that are injured right now. Kike Hernandez, Chris Taylor. He's not going to be a star role player. He's not going to be the guy that leads you to a World Series. They had a chance to go get somebody like that, a la relief pitching, a la Edwin Diaz from the New York Mets. They need somebody to support Kenley Jansen right now. They need somebody to support the back end of that bullpen, be the setup guy in the eighth inning. Edwin Diaz would have been perfect, but apparently there was nothing the Dodgers liked out there or the asking price was too high. Nonetheless, only coming back with Jed Jerko is unacceptable if you're going after a World Series. C in my book for the Dodgers. The Milwaukee Brewers, I'm giving them a C as well. This week, they were able to get back Jake Faria, Jordan Lyles, and Drew Pomeranz, three pitchers. In exchange, they gave up Jesus Aguilar and then Mauricio Dubon, a prospect. 
Has the brewery's starting rotation not lived up to expectations? Yes. Will Free and Lyles help? Yes. But how much will they help? How big of an impact are they? Plus, you give up Aguilar, a guy who was starting to find his rhythm at the plate. That seemed like a panic move to me. Milwaukee thought they better sell as high as they can get, and they thought that's as high as Jesus would have got. Milwaukee appeared to think that Jesus' all-star year last year was an aberration, that this was the real Jesus Aguilar, and they better cut their losses and sell high. I don't believe that. Because now you're in a position where your primary catcher is going to have to be playing about 50% of the innings at first base. And granted, Manny Pena's had an uptick offensively, but how long does that last? How much exactly did Milwaukee upgrade their starting rotation? And then Drew Pomeranz, a converted starter, he's coming into the bullpen. You know, he'll give you a little bit of length, but the bullpen's not the problem for Milwaukee. But I could forgive all of that. I could forgive all of that. Maybe give him a higher grade if it wasn't for the fact that they once had Jordan Lyles under control. That they once had Jordan Lyles. Last season, in fact, and he pitched okay for Milwaukee, about as well as he is this year and they turned down his $3 million player option. Then less than a year later, they decide, oh, he is good enough for our team. Let's give up a prospect for him. That's why I give Milwaukee an average grade on trade deadline day. The Minnesota Twins. I'm giving them a C+. They did what they need to. The weakest part of that team was the bullpen, so they go out and they get Sergio Romo over the weekend, and then yesterday they pick up Sam Dyson. They beat the buzzer getting him from San Francisco. It wasn't sexy. It wasn't a big splash. But it solved a need for Minnesota. Their offense isn't the problem. In fact, their offense is the best in baseball. They've got four players with 20 home runs or more. Their starters are not the problem. They've now got three different starters with 10 wins or more. The last two times they did that was 2010 and 2017. They made the playoffs both years. Their starters are doing just fine. And the two that haven't got to 10 wins this year, Michael Pineda and Martin Perez, they're still pretty good. Starting pitching is not the issue for Minnesota. What is the issue and what has been the issue is the bullpen. So Minnesota went out and they got a couple of guys that no one really picked up on. And while their best days may be behind them, I'll I'll say that, I'll admit that, they are proven winners. And how about this stat? In terms of win percentage added, Sergio Romo is 7th in all of Major League Baseball among relief pitchers at 2.07. Sam Dyson is 13th at 1.83. To give you a perspective, a little measuring stick, Taylor Rogers, the current Twins closer, ranks 9th in that category at 1.96. So is it sexy? No. Was it the right thing for Minnesota to do? Absolutely. They got the best relievers that they weren't going to give up an arm and a leg for, but could still do the job. They just need a one or two relief pitchers. Guys to bolster that team a little bit. Now, I'm not saying they're a World Series team by any stretch, but they're going to be in a lot better shape going down this back end of the season. The New York Mets, I'm giving them a C-. minus. They don't know what they're doing right now. They don't know what they're trying to become. They don't know if they're contenders. They don't know if they're sellers. They got Marcus Stroman to the naked eye. That's pretty good. Marcus Stroman is an awesome pitcher. He is a big league pitcher. They have got an awesome pitching rotation right now, especially since they were able to flip Jason Vargas. However, they held on to Syndergaard. They held on to Wheeler. They held on to Diaz. They have a lot of guys that they didn't move and a lot of guys who aren't going to be there in the coming seasons and they're not going to get anything back for because they think that they can still make the playoffs in 2019. They have this fairy tale that they are going to erase a five-game wild card deficit over five different teams, by the way, and sneak into the postseason only to what? Get bounced in the wild card game? The Mets don't know what they're trying to be. They don't know if they're building for the future or if they're building for right now. And they don't have the team to build for right now. This was not a good trade deadline for the New York Mets. 
and most egregiously, they didn't upgrade their bullpen. In fact, they didn't do anything to the bullpen. They didn't ship out Edwin Diaz. They didn't bring in anyone else to support him. Jairus Familia's best days are behind him. They have a bullpen that leads a league in blown saves. They didn't do anything to fix that. They are not going to contend in August and September with that bullpen. Doesn't matter how good your starting rotation is or what kind of offense you have. Your infield defense is atrocious and so is your bullpen. New York doesn't know what they want to be right now. Speaking of New York, the Yankees, I'm giving them a D-. What happened there? What the heck happened in the Bronx? It seems like after they didn't land Stroman, someone took the wind completely out of their sails. Bumgarner was no longer on the table. Wheeler was no longer on the table. The Yankees just excused themselves after failing to land Marcus Stroman. Did not make a single move. And I'll tell you right now, the Yankees don't have a good enough pitching staff to win them a World Series. The Houston Astros have three guys better than the Yankees number one. Because I tell you what, I do believe you need a solid top-tier pitcher to be able to win a World Series. The Yankees don't have that. Tanaka's not going to be that guy. Paxton is not going to be that guy. Severino, when he ever gets back, he's not going to be that guy. The Yankees have the offense. They do not have the pitching. In fact, their pitching staff is in worse shape than Minnesota. They're pretty comparable to Minnesota right now as far as teams with a chance of getting to the World Series. The Yankees sat on their hands and they missed a golden opportunity to get to the World Series in a league where there's no salary cap. The Yankees have more money than they'll ever be able to spend. They have no problem picking up an extra lucrative contract and paying it off in the next year or two as long as it guarantees them a World Series. The Yankees haven't won one since 2009. They're not going to do it again this year. The Yankees didn't even swing and miss at the trade deadline. The Yankees stood there and watched strike three go by. The Philadelphia Phillies. I'm giving them a B. They picked up Drew Smiley, a guy who's been very good before. But since his Tommy John surgery in 2017 hasn't been the same. Still, does he have something to offer? Sure. I think he's still got something left in the tank. He can still contribute to a team that's pushing for a playoff spot down the stretch. And then yesterday, they go out and they get Corey Dickerson. Awesome move. A guy with an awesome bat. His defense is fine. But he is a guy that you picked up for his bat. He's a guy that's going to take some of the load off in your outfield after losing Andrew McCutcheon to a season-ending injury. This was an awesome pickup for Philadelphia. Kudos to them. And finally, the Washington Nationals. I could give them an A-. I'm going to give them a B plus, though. They did exactly what they needed to. They addressed their biggest need, relief pitching. They went out and they got Daniel Hudson, Ronis Elias, who was the closer for the Seattle Mariners, and Hunter Strickland. They stocked up on relief pitching, exactly what they needed. If they get in the playoffs, they have three top-tier starting pitchers of their own between Scherzer, Strasburg, and Corbin. Now, it's nowhere near the tier that Houston's pitchers are on, but it's still pretty good. Washington is playing red-hot baseball right now, and they address their biggest need. I'm giving them a B plus. Those are my grades for the MLB trade deadline. Teams making moves, teams that didn't but should have. Man, I love this time of the year. I can't wait to see how it plays out over the course of the next two months. And I tell you what, we owe you our last time out. When we come back, a special event is coming to the UP for the first time ever. We're going to chat about that next. Plus... A Marquette native representing the red, white, and blue in South America trying to bring home a gold medal. couple interviews coming up for you next on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to The Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. 
Well, this fall, Division One Golf is going to be coming to the Upper Peninsula, to the Island Resort and Casino down near Escanaba, Bark River area. And we're joined by the tournament coach here, Tony Mancia, also GM down there at Island Resort. Tony, this is going to be a lot of fun seeing some high-quality golf come up here to the UP. Tell me about how this all came about. Yeah, we, we're really excited. Uh, Casey Van Dam is, is from the UP, and he's the head coach of South Dakota State, and he was looking for a venue to host, you know, and showcase the Upper Peninsula. And, you know, our new course, Sage Run, it opened uh, last year. This is its first full year. We thought it was a great opportunity to put some, uh, you know, top-notch players on it and let them see how the course plays from the tips. Yeah, it'll be a two-day, 54-hole stroke play tournament on September 1st, running into the 2nd. Tell me about how you filled out the lineup, because you got some pretty stout competition coming. Well, you know, we asked Casey. We wanted a Michigan school, and we have uh, Michigan State coming, so we wanted someone out of the Big Ten, and he got Purdue and Kentucky from the SEC. So we wanted some big names, but we also, you know, we wanted Northern Michigan to come play. You know, they play up at Gray Walls, which is a stout course, and we don't think, you know, Sage Run has some similar characteristics, so we think they're going to be able to hang in there. And then the rest of the field kind of filled out according to, you know, Casey's relationships with these coaches. He's got a couple of ranked teams in there nationally. North Florida's 15, and I think Liberty's around 20. So we have some ranked teams. We have some Big Ten teams. We have some SEC schools. Yeah, you've mentioned Liberty is coming. They have one of the top-ranked golfers from the past school year, and Irving Chang is going to come. So you're going to see some guys that very well could be playing at the next level here in a couple of months. Oh, yeah. You know, the, those schools, you know, they, they bring in the big golfers and, uh, you know, big-name golfers. So, yeah, it's going to be a great opportunity to see them. And, you know, Casey, you know, he, he goes to a lot of these college events, and he, he's seen some of the guys on the PGA at these events. So I wouldn't be surprised if you see him up on the next level. So a few other schools that are going to participate here, Detroit University, Purdue, Kentucky, as mentioned, along with Northern Florida and Liberty. Central Florida is going to be there, East Carolina, and, of course, Northern Michigan, along with Michigan State. How long has Casey been in contact with you? How long has this been in the works? Uh, about 18 months. You know, he came, you know, the year we opened, a little before we opened, and he asked, hey, would you guys be interested? And you know, said not this year, you know, not not 2018, but 2019 looks like a, you know, it would work. It gave us some time to plan and, you know, make sure we had the hotel rooms. And, you know, we, we plan out about a year on our schedule, so it worked out good. Hey, tell me about the course down there for those who have never been to Island Resort. I mean, it's a beautiful place. Oh, yeah. we You know, we have two courses. The Symmetra Tour goes to our Sweetgrass course, and it's a prairie-style course. You know, it's more links looking where this one has a couple holes like that, but the majority of it is up and down hills. Uh, totally different turf. Uh, it's got a wide, got wide fairways, tree line, heavily bunkered, no water on the course. We're really excited how the course turned out. Talking with Tony Mancia, general manager of Island Resort and Casino in Bark River. He is going to be hosting the I believe it's the first ever Division One golf tournament here to the UP. To your knowledge, Tony, has there ever been a tournament this big up here? I do not know, to be honest with you, but I'm hoping it is. Well, it's going to be a lot of fun. We're looking forward to it coming up September 1st and 2nd. So now for you, with a little over a month until this tournament begins, what does this mean for you and the resort staff? How are you guys spending the next month? 
Well, we're really going to promote it. You know, we want we want folks to go out and watch the players. You know, we have a local guy, Dave uh, Bryce Douglas from uh, Gladstone, that plays for Detroit Mercy. So we want you know the folks from Gladstone to come out and watch. So we want everyone to know what it is, where it is, when it is, and how to play, how to get there. You know, and you can look on the map. You know, on uh, on the website our island resort website and find a map to the course and then you know admission is free so you can just bring your chair and uh, we'll shuttle you to the top of the hill if you don't want to walk and then you can watch and play for those who are thinking about attending the event who would like to what else do they need to know as far as being prepared for a day like this what do they need to know about island resort and all it offers you know, they just need to bring, you know, a folding chair, and, you know, you know how the weather is in the UP, you don't really have to tell Upers that, but, uh, you know, we'll have food up there, you know, there'll be, uh, there'll be, like I said, there'll be shuttles, and, uh, you know, it's, it's just going to be a fun event. I'm excited to see that this is going to be top quality golf once again, September 1st and 2nd in uh, Bark Rivers Island Resort and Casino, talking with General Manager and Tournament Co-Chair Tony Mancia. Tony, tell me about the rest of the committee. How many people does it take to put something like this on? we got about seven people. We have myself, uh, Sue Harris, who's working on the, the player accommodations and hospitality. Scott Hero is our CFO. He makes sure that you know everything that on that side is aligned up. And then our Director of Golf, uh, Dave Douglas, and then we have superintendent is matt sly and then we also have uh casey van dam you've got a really good weekend for the scheduled weather permitting it's going to fall in with labor day was that by accident or by design by design yep. you know uh you know the uh you know they like to do them on sunday monday tournaments so we wanted to do a day where people could come out on monday and labor day is just the perfect time to do it were you competing with other tournaments to try to get teams to come? You know, I don't know that. That's That would be Casey's uh, bailiwick. He's the guy that lined up the schools. And, you know, he, he, he actually has some names on deck for 2020. So, I mean, I won't let... I won't reveal those because I don't really know them all, but he has some pretty nice schools coming for the year after. So uh, once it takes off, I think the, the reputation gets out there. More schools are going to want to be want to come up. So there is plans for this to continue and be a long-term event? Uh, at least for two years. All right. We, we, we don't, uh, you know, we're going to see how she goes. Well, I tell you what, Tony, there's a lot of reason for people to be excited. We can come out and spend Labor Day with you. Really appreciate you giving us the time, and we'll look forward to seeing you there in about a month. That sounds great. We hope to see you. Traveling down to South America here just for a moment, but sticking on the ESPN-UP phone line, I'm joined by Wes Veer, a Marquette native who's getting ready to head down to Peru and represent America in the Pan Am Games. Wes, I appreciate you taking the time. This has got to be a hectic time of year for you, but man, what an exciting time it's got to be. Oh yeah, we are absolutely thrilled. Can't wait to head down and uh, get to race with the USA on our backs. Well, the Pan Am Games just getting kicked off down in Lima, Peru. It's held every four years, and this will be the largest event ever hosted by the country. And a little bit of background on the Pan Am Games. Forty-one nations are going to compete. The U.S. has sent between 630, 640 athletes, somewhere in that neighborhood. And there's going to be various sports that are competing. You're going to be part of the rowing team. Tell me about U.S. rowing and how this all came about. So yeah, so the Pan Ams are a pretty cool event. It's basically an Olympic style format in the fact that like every, like you mentioned, every four years, all these different sports are hosted to, uh, to race. So 
We, uh, I get to be part of the rowing contingent, so similar to like the Olympic setup where you have the whole USA squad show up. Um, I'll be able to uh, go race with the U.S. for that. We have, uh, I can't remember how many boats, but we have a bunch of different boats going down. My teammate and I won the, uh, the U.S. trials to get to go represent the U.S. in the men's double skulls, so we'll be uh, in a team boat down there. Now, what is double skulls for somebody who's not an aficionado? Yeah, so rowing has two different uh, disciplines is probably the best word to use. Uh, you have sweep rowing, which most people are used to. That's like the eight-man boats with like the very long or one per person. But then you also have uh, sculling, which is two shorter oars per person. And so my teammate and I, we're in the... Uh, the double skulls, so two guys with two oars each. Tell me about qualification and how you got paired up with your teammate. Yeah, so we train, uh, we are on the same team up in middle of nowhere, Vermont, pretty similar to the UP actually, just a little bit more hilly and not as big of a lake, but uh, we train up in northern Vermont and we race at the under the Green Racing Project, which is a club up here that has elite uh, athletes training for both Cross country or for cross country skiing, biathlon, and rowing. So we're part of the rowing side of things, and we, uh, my coach, had us do selection last summer in order to figure out who would be in the double. And my teammate and I ended up putting together a pretty decent boat. So then we uh, we went down to race at the trials event, um, similar to like track and field or swimming, where like everyone shows up and you race in whatever event you're trying to make it in. And for rowing, it's usually just the fastest boat in each one. So we showed up, we raced, I think there were nine different entries um, for the double for Pan Ams. And so we raced those nine different boats and ended up winning the trials regatta. So then that meant we got to uh, head down south to Rio last December for the actual qualification regatta. Um, and then now Lima next, uh, next week. Well, I know that being an international athlete it's got to require constant training but is it any different when you know that you're qualified you're into something like the pan ams or the olympics is training any different than say when you haven't qualified yet interesting question it more so just in the probably the mental aspect of things um you like you know that you have it locked away kind of thing so you have like a little bit of stress that you don't have to worry about quite as much so, like, you're able to really focus in on the training and, like, have, like, know that you're going to, uh, going to be racing so you don't have to, like, worry quite as much and you can really just focus on, like, trying to make the boat move as well as we possibly can. So, yeah, a little bit of a reduction in stress, but then at the same time, now we know that we're going to go be racing all these different American teams from South America, Central America, and Canada, so it then adds a little bit more stress. So probably about pretty neutral as far as uh, addition and subtraction of stress. Talk with Wes Veer, the UP native who's heading down to the Pan Am Games representing Team USA in the rowing competition. Wes, a lot of people here probably recognize you, probably know you. You're from Marquette. For those who may not, let's give them a little background on you. You were a swimmer for a long time and went to the University of Michigan. They were national champions in swimming, so you decided to take up rowing as a club sport. But tell me about when you really decided that rowing was something you want to stick with and go long-term with. 
Yeah, so I, like you said, I grew up uh, swimming most of my time. I actually did the uh, the Upper Peninsula Community Rowing Club for a few years um, right on Lake Superior there. So that was my introduction to rowing, but then uh, decided to go for swimming throughout high school. And then, yeah, like you mentioned, Michigan has a uh, quite the fast swimming team. So unfortunately, I wasn't going to be able uh, going to be fast enough to race for them. So then I just randomly ran into a bunch of the guys on the rowing team in the center of campus during one of our annual recruiting events, and they convinced me to uh, come try it out. They uh, tempted me with the idea of being able to like race for a national championship, even my first year of training there. So I went tried a couple uh, tried a couple practices and was totally hooked. Tell me about rowing as compared to, it was a club sport in Michigan. Tell me about a club sport compared to a varsity sport. Is there a noticeable difference? It really depends on the club program. So, for example, we are, by definition, we're a club team at Michigan, but we try to carry ourselves in, like, we have basically the same training commitment as a varsity-level program. If you, like, look at us compared to other varsity schools with rowing, or with rowing varsity programs, but uh, it really just depends on the school. That's just the culture that has uh, been built by our current coach at Michigan over the past couple decades that he's been there. He's made it a very competitive thing. So we're clubbing that we don't really get any funding or much support from the university or the athletic department at all, but we train at that varsity level program. So because of that, we've uh, Michigan has won the club national championship for the past 11 years now. Um, so it's a pretty pretty high competitive uh, level club at Michigan, but then you have other schools where it's more just like for the fun of it kind of thing, and they don't train nearly as much. So it just really just depends on the school that and the program that you're at. Well, speaking of coaches, tell me about who's going to be leading Team USA down there in Lima. Yeah, so uh, we will be having – so. From the club where I'm training right now in Vermont, we have my boat, the uh, the double for men, and then we also have the men's single and the women's single uh, from my club that won trials last year. So we have four boats going down. So our coach that trains us here actually at our club is going to be, uh, he's going to be going with us down there to be our coach during that. Um, similar to, I think that's pretty similar to like how swimming does things and that like the coach of the athletes that uh like train them throughout the year will go down so like there will be a number of different coaches for all the various different boat classes depending on the uh the clubs that folks are coming from so as you get set to head down there and you've been training for months and months now what portion of the day is devoted to training what do you have for nutrition sleeping what have you yeah, so I am actually very lucky in the club that we train at. So we're fully sponsored athletes in that the uh, the club provides housing, equipment, food, um, coaching, travel expenses for racing and training, that sort of thing. So we, uh, we get all that support. So luckily we don't have to actually uh, have a full-time job like a lot of people at clubs around the country do or – like there are a lot, a lot of guys and girls up into their late twenties that are still relying on their parents to help them cover costs, kind of thing. So we uh, we're sponsored by the club. So like we have practice in the morning, usually a couple hours. Uh, then like we do some work for the club throughout the day, and then usually another hour to two hour practice in the afternoon with lifting scattered throughout there. So usually the 
the weeks are somewhere between like 16 to 22 hours of training a week. So usually about like three up to five hours a day, depending. Talking with Wes Veer, Marquette native. He'll be representing Team USA at the Pan Am Games next month. Well, Wes, the competition itself when you get down there, a lot of teams from the Americas, 41 countries are going to be there. Are there any countries that are known for having good rowing teams? Who's going to be some of the stiffest competition down there? Yeah, so in the Americas, the U.S. and Canada are usually the uh, some of the top contenders as far as just like overall teams go, like just the depth of the speed. But then you'll have a number of smaller uh, countries in Central and South America that have like uh, one or two boats that are just like very fast just based on the like the athletes that are in them. So, for example... Um, I think it's Argentina has had a pair and a double that has done really well over the past uh, couple Olympic cycles. Um, and Cuba, for example, has one of the top single scholars in the world. So it, there are a bunch of different countries that have like boats here and there that are pretty pretty quick. So it'll be uh, it'll be fun seeing all these different uh, levels of competition and. Uh, so a lot of a lot of speed depending on the boat class. Well, as last thing before I let you go, how cool is it to go down there and being able to represent your country wearing the red, white, and blue? It's awesome. It is so much fun, especially uh, getting to travel down there with the whole team. We'll all be on one flight heading down to Lima, and so like it's it's really cool just like how the anticipation builds over the course of the trip, and then once you're there, it's definitely a surreal surreal experience. Wes Veer, Marquette native, once again, he will be competing for Team USA at the Pan Am Games in Lima. Wes, really appreciate you taking the time. All the best down there in Peru. We'll be watching. Hopefully we can talk again soon afterwards. Thank you so much. That'll do it for our show today. As always, I appreciate you tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the show as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. Tune in tomorrow. We've got a special segment coming up for you. That is something I've been working on a long time. And it's appropriate with the trade deadline ending yesterday. The worst trades in franchise history for all 30 Major League Baseball teams. I'm going to have that plus much more coming up during tomorrow's show. It's my hope that you join me. Same time and place, 4 Eastern, 3 Central on ESPN-UP and online with our app. Signing off from our WZAM studios in downtown Marquette, Michigan, I'm Tanner Hoops. Here's the Will Kane Show.